I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. I know. This isn't really a war movie. A case could be made for this not really even being a movie. But these days, the distinction between a, quote, legitimate film and just something you watch on a screen is one that's getting harder and harder to make. As the media we consume gets higher in definition, the line separating mediums becomes blurrier and blurrier. How's that for some poetic irony? The world of online streaming had often been considered a mortal enemy to the Hollywood business model. An enemy they knew they would have to reckon with one day, but the COVID-19 epidemic pushed that timetable way up as release dates kept getting pushed way back. New movies couldn't get made, and the ones that were ready to go couldn't get released. And in the midst of all this, the hungry movie-going public was going nuts in isolation. At the height of the pandemic, we were all stuck in our homes with goddamn nothing to do. That's when some streaming heroes stepped in to give the people the content they sometimes didn't know they wanted, but oh so richly deserved. Netflix gave us the Tiger King. In a move somehow even classier and less destructive to the collective culture than that, Pornhub started giving out free premium memberships. And Disney Plus gave us today's film. If you're confused by a Broadway musical's inclusion in a war film podcast, you aren't alone. The film award shows couldn't agree on how to handle it either. It was nominated for Emmys, Directors Guild, and Producers Guild Awards, Kids' Choice Awards, and it even received a special award from the American Film Institute. The Golden Globes nominated it for Best Picture. The lone holdout that year was the Oscars the Academy saying definitively that this is not a film and does not qualify for consideration. So clearly, not everybody's going to agree on this. But this is our series of episodes dedicated to rebellions and revolutions, and I defy anyone to find a better movie than this about the American Revolution. Find me something with a depiction of George Washington that captures his larger-than-life legend, his historical impact, and his humanity more perfectly. Find me another film that brings to life the political infighting of the nation's founders more viscerally. A film that highlights the fundamental contradictions inherent in the American experiment. Find me a better movie to communicate to a modern generation the tangible energy of imagining what is possible that made this nation possible, for better or worse. And find me one with music that, for lack of a better term, slaps this hard. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So raise a glass to freedom with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director, who collectively promise that this is not just a clickbait episode to capture new listeners, as we discuss the 2020 film of the 2016 performance of the 2015 smash hit musical from Hip Hop Wunderkind and my personal imaginary boyfriend, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Hamilton. Call it in. It's danger close. Welcome to Danger Close, a war film podcast. Today we are doing, this is our first musical, right? 
First musical? First time? It's definitely our first. It's a first. My name is Dan, and I'm here with my partners. Katie. And Liam. So today we are doing Hamilton, which is a... It was released in 2020 as the recording of the stage play, I believe. So the musical itself started in 2015 on stage. It premiered. I think this particular recording dates back to 2016. It just didn't it does, premiere yes. on Disney Plus until uh, last year in July. I'll, I'll tell you guys all about all the musicals I've been getting into lately because my girlfriend is definitely taking advantage of the opportunity and Katie's here with our mission briefing. Lin-Manuel Miranda has said that Hamilton is the story of America then told by America now. After reading Ron Chernow's biography of Alexander Hamilton, Miranda was inspired to write a mixtape based on the life of the founding father. Over a few years, he developed an off-Broadway play which eventually became a worldwide sensation. The story focuses on Hamilton's life after he arrives in New York as a young man and his struggle to rise up from his own impoverished beginnings while also heavily contributing to the development of the United States in ways that are still impacting the world today. It was met with huge acclaim almost immediately. Its initial run at the public in New York sold out in record time and opened on Broadway six months after its premiere. It has won so many awards over the years, it's a bit mind-boggling, from the 11 Tony Awards to the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. The play is by no means a spot-on depiction of the events of Hamilton's life or Hamilton himself. Instead, it is a more idealized story of how Hamilton could have been. Miranda chose to cast the play with almost exclusively people of color for several reasons, most often cited being it is a more accurate depiction of America today, it would appeal to a much wider audience, and it was the appropriate cast for the musical material. So I love musicals. I've been watching them since I was young. But this one I hadn't watched until just a few days ago because all that hype and my own inability to get tickets just made me really salty. And I was like, I'll watch it sometime. So, but I don't know how many opportunities we're going to get to discuss musicals, at least on our regular feed. So I wanted to take a second and talk about our experiences with musicals and our general thoughts on the genre. Dan. Yeah, I think it's no secret, I've mentioned it before, that musicals don't tend to be my favorite genre simply because they tend to mess with my suspension of disbelief. And when people are running around singing and dancing, it's like constantly reminding me that this thing is not real. So I'm not experienced enough with stage plays in general and live theater to know if this is the case, but my suspicion is that in a movie, it's going to take me out a little bit more, you know, an actual motion picture that's filmed on sets where most, you know, there's people with dialogue and regular story, but then everybody breaks out in song and dance versus a piece like this that is there literally is no dialogue and it is all song and dance or rap and dance, but the whole thing is musical. Early on, it invites me to just throw the realism out the window and just focus on the craftsmanship of it. I've been trying to explore musicals lately, and Jackie's been very happy to do that with me because she's a big fan. So we had we just watched Moulin Rouge last night for my first time, which I actually really, really loved. We watched Chicago recently, and I'm sure there will be many more. Katie has been praising Billy Elliot, so that's up there on our list. So 
I would say that I am early on in my journey of learning to appreciate theater and musicals more. And the first part of that, like any journey of a similar kind, is really the most fun because I can be introduced to just the cream of the crop. Every time someone introduces me to a musical, it's like the best of its kind or some kind of monumental thing. And it's fun to watch the top 10% of stuff because everything is great and award winning. Even when it's not technically my genre or something I would normally be into when you're watching something that's so technically well done, it's still an enjoyable experience. And Hamilton was (laughs) at the same time, no different from that, but also very different because I haven't seen anything like Hamilton before. And it is one of the musicals I have enjoyed the most so far. I've never seen it live again, too much of a pain in the butt. It played in San Francisco a lot, but it was very expensive. And I just, you know, it wasn't worth the effort for someone like me, but someday I'm sure I will go see it live. I definitely watch this with subtitles, but I was pleasantly surprised with how easy the English is to keep up with, not knowing in advance where the blend of modern parlance versus late 1700s lingo was going to be. I was sort of preparing my brain for, okay, there's going to be some hip hop, but it's going to be older language that's hard to keep up with. And so I'm really going to have to put my Shakespeare hat on. And then I realized very quickly that it wasn't like that. And the English is really easy to keep up with in this. So I still think it's pretty information dense in the first act. So I really needed the uh, subtitles or those helped. But yeah, I had a really phenomenal experience with it. Is it my turn? It's your turn. I actually have a fairly long history with musicals. I have studied them both in a performance sense, a staging technical sense, and also like the history of them. Much like jazz, musicals as we understand them today are very much an American art form. Not so much now, but early on, they were, and for a long time thereafter, they were almost like the hot dog to an actual German like bratwurst or <laughs> real like, oh, this is how we make the sausage. Uh, and then America's like, great, we made hot dogs. That's kind of like the if if opera was the German sausage, American musicals were the hot dog at the ballpark. It seemed to be a lot more accessible to people. A lot of the traditions came out of vaudeville and musical reviews. And then you started with things like Showboat getting into some semblance of a plot that joined them all together. So, Dan, I would be really interested in seeing what your reactions were to some older musicals that were considered like the Hamiltons of their day, like Music Man, which I still love. That was probably one of my first musicals and things like Guys and Dolls and and some of those classic like book musicals that my wife hates, but she loves more modern musicals, like pretty much anything by uh, Sondheim like really into into the woods and Sunday in the park with George and things like that. My performance aspect of musicals is a little sorted, personally embarrassing for me. My high school always did a big musical in the spring and everybody was encouraged to audition for it. And everybody who auditioned for it got cast. I was the one in the ensemble who was told 
to lip sing along with everybody else. <laughs> because my grasp of uh, harmony leaves much to be desired. I very well might just be completely tone deaf. I've n- I don't think so. Like I can hear it in other people, but like when I'm just singing by myself, there is no way that I'm staying on any kind of pitch or yaw or whatever the fuck the word is for, you know, you know, the stuff with the things that makes the music sound good. I have none of that inside of my ears, but I enjoyed being a part of them lip singing, notwithstanding. And because of that, I never really got like the good roles in the musicals. I did much better in the straight, in the straight plays rather than uh, my musical career kind of ended with high school. I never really went out for another musical again for the rest of my life, which I think everybody would be pleased to know who heard me in those early days. My tastes in musicals are kind of wide ranging. I don't have the willing suspension of disbelief problem because I grew up watching all sorts of musicals. Uh, So it's very easy for me to just be like, Oh, and now we're singing. Like I, I know that that's going to be part of the thing going in. So it doesn't take me out of it in any way, shape or form. And if you were raised on a lot of the Disney animated films that were coming out in the late eighties and early nineties, that would be kind of just the storytelling devices that you were exposed to first as a child. And I am familiar with all those. I I was raised on those. The only strange difference being for me is that up until probably Aladdin and later, I know all those songs in Italian because I watched the Italian versions of those Disney movies. So like, that's amazing. I know all the melodies, (laughs) but when kids put like an old one on like Cinderella, I'm like, Oh, weird. I don't know the words because I only know them in Italian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the translate, you can't translate immediately right, right. in your head. And they're super well done. I think Italian dubbers are pretty well known in, in the like international dubbing community that they're good. So the songs are all good and stuff, but it's definitely a different experience. It was funny. We watched, what it was Beauty and the Beast mm. in my Spanish class, but we watched it in Spanish and I don't speak Spanish unless I'm drunk. In my Spanish class, I had I'd watched Beauty and the Beast so many times that like I could translate it for everybody else just because I knew what the English words that were said in that moment at that time. I didn't want to interrupt Liam's flow of self-deprecation because I know there's especially a certain segment of the audience that's just sitting there, you know, enjoying it. So <laughs> but I will add that Liam proved recently, if you haven't listened to our last episode on uh, the wind that shakes the barley, that his poetry reading and his his uh, interpretation of an of a light Irish accent are very on point and were very well received, and he got a lot of compliments for that. So nice job, Liam. I mean, his intros are always creative, but he decided to do something different for the last episode. So if you haven't listened to that, go catch it because it's different. I had a question for both of you guys, really, especially for Liam, who's participated in a lot of this theater production. You know, watching the actors on stage, it's always daunting to a non actor the amount of memorization and recitation that's going on. And to be honest, how good the acting was where I'm like, man, these people aren't just singing and running around. There's a lot of facial acting and expression of emotions. And there's a lot going on. You can't just focus. You can't suck at memorizing things because you have other stuff to do while you're up there reciting these things. 
in your experience, and again, Katie, jump in if you have some too, in terms of having to learn the lines and memorize things that are set to music and singing, which to me, that seems like something that would be easier to do than to just do a straight play and memorize straight dialogue. I imagine that there is there are cadences and you know movements up and down and things in regular dialogue, depending on whether it's Shakespearean or not, that also help you with that. But what's you guys' opinions on sung memorization and dialogue versus recitation? It, it seems to me, from a layman's perspective, that one would be easier than the other, relatively speaking. But I don't know. I wanted to ask you that. Liam? No, you're exactly right. The addition of... Any kind of meter is going to make it a lot easier. If it rhymes, even better. It's difficult to paraphrase Shakespeare and not sound awful. So you you have a kind of double-edged sword with Shakespeare in that there are definitely going to be members of the audience that know it verbatim inside and out and have come to hear exactly that thing that is known so well to them. But it's also easier to hit all of those lines precisely because they were written in a way that lends itself very easily to memorization. And if you say something wrong, it even like clangs in your own head because it just doesn't meet out the way that it should. Same thing with musicals. Nobody really forgets their lines in a song. Worst case scenario I can think of is that you might skip a verse, but you're not going to just forget what the words are. Whereas it's a lot easier to go up on a line if you have no rhythm, no music that's kind of like pushing you through it, no rhyming. The, the kind of nightmare scenario is doing anything absurdist. There's a play by Eugenie Inesco, who is a fabulous absurdist playwright called The Bald Soprano, which was written as almost an anti-play that none of the dialogue makes a goddamn lick of sense. There is no continuity with the scenes. No emphasis whatsoever is put on character. I mean, there are lines repeated back and forth to each other so often that you have to really put in the extra effort to memorize it or you will just get lost. I imagine that it was much easier to memorize Hamilton. Right. Because one of the big differences, again, these things are obvious, I think, to people who are experts or who work in the industry, but trying to let the audience in and and give a little bit of a layman's perspective, which is certainly where I come from, in regular filmmaking, part of the thing that makes that gives actors a little bit of a break is you're only filming so many scenes in one day. And so your requirement for memorization is only so much of a load at one time. And there are exceptions to that. I think Birdman comes to mind when you're doing these super long shots where it's like, oh, you have to memorize seven minutes of dialogue, which in a film is unusual. But in a play, if especially if you're one of the bigger speakers and one of the main uh, cast members, I mean, it's two hours and... 20 minutes, 40 minutes, where you're responsible for a large portion of that dialogue. And that just seems crazy to me. Well, there was that that praise that Scarlett Johansson got for Marriage Story that was she had that one monologue or that one scene that she did that was like three to four minutes of her just going through this monologue. And everybody was like, oh, my God, that was amazing. And like all the theater nerds are like, 
So? Yeah, well, when Noah Baumbach is writing the writing the script, and Noah Baumbach is generally more known as a playwright, you know, that's what you're going to get from him, and that's why people like working with him. I think generally actors learn the whole part before they film the movie, but yeah, you get those, okay, I'm filming five, ten minutes of a scene. I really need to know exactly this, and then I sit down for... However long could be 10 minutes, could be no minutes, could be, all right, we're wrapping. Now we're going to tomorrow, even though it's noon, because for whatever reason. Mm. So there is a lot more interstitial prep time, whereas in a play, it's you best know it all and know it well, or it's you're going to find yourself out there uh, just staring at the crowd like, oh, God. Yeah, it sounds like the worst nightmare ever. Super challenging. Yeah. Isn't there a term for that, Liam? When you find yourself just caught on the stage, like... Stage fright? Well, I can tell you firsthand that... Now, I I haven't just plain old gone up on a line in front of an audience. uh, But even in a rehearsal or in a classroom setting, it is one of the most horrifying experiences of all time. So I can't even imagine. Yeah, it. it sounds like the nightmare where you're like naked in front of people. You know, it's just like the most embarrassing thing ever. And you can't just run away and everyone's staring at you. <laughs> I had to do a monologue for a period performance class where it was the final. And we had to do the same monologue in three different period styles. And for some reason, I could not like this monologue just would not take my brain would not accept it. And so I, in spite of my, my best efforts, didn't have the thing memorized and I had to get up in front of the class and perform it. And I didn't know it at all. And I had to repeat it three times in three different period styles. And it was, it was mortifying. Yeah. That's the word for it. The thing is with Hamilton, I would say that there was probably some of that where we're learning a song and the song will help us remember. But when you are talking about the bigger roles where you are doing some serious rap battle type stuff, like especially the scenes between Jefferson and Hamilton, which are very much mimicking a rap battle. That's why Mm -hmm. they have the microphones and everything. Mm -hmm. Or when we're really introduced to Lafayette for the first time, there are points where they are speaking like six words a second and they are just rapid fire. And there it's not necessarily about the memorization. It's about the ability to speak clearly and get all the words out and still stay within, you know, the right tempo and everything so that you're keeping the audience going. And not break character. Right. And you're projecting. And yeah, I think it's probably a more difficult challenge doing this. And because I mean, this is the first big musical that is almost exclusively some type of rap or hip hop. There's a little bit of a jazzy style in certain points, but this is very much a first of its kind when it comes to how it styles its music. And David Diggs and Lin-Manuel Miranda are great artists to be interpreting it like that because that's what they're good at. If you haven't listened to uh, David Diggs, who's from Oakland, by the way, but if you haven't listened to his band Clipping... They're really great. He was also in uh, Blind Spotting, which is a motion picture that was made probably 2017, 18, something like that. That's really great. 
about someone who's on parole in Oakland and kind of it really shows you a slice of life into the lives of a bunch of different families in Oakland and it's all filmed and on location. Before we get into the history and, and the real characters and start talking about that, how do you guys see this play in the way that it brings in hip hop and jazz and these more modern sort of anachronistic style for the time that's being depicted? And yeah, the fact that it's not really sung, most of it is wrapped, and that it seemed to me, without reading into it too much, that Miranda was really trying to bridge this gap, which I think also has a little bit to do with what kind of audience he's attracting, right? I think that musicals, opera, theater tends to attract a lot of old, money, rich white people. That's like a large part of the audience traditionally. And it certainly seems like this play is trying to bring in a more diverse and younger audience. Well, what's interesting about the different musical influences that are in Hamilton are, are how, how intelligently Lin-Manuel Miranda lays them out and juxtaposes them off of each other. So you have most of the main characters are rapping throughout all of Act one, mm-hmm. most of them, not all, but most. And then it opens up act two with the return of Thomas Jefferson, who hasn't been a part of the American culture recently because he's been over in France. And so he comes in in act two completely out of step and out of sync with everybody else, singing a much more like jazz influenced tune rather than melding right into the end of the hip hop aspect. There is no more status quo But the sun comes up and the world still spins And he gets there really quickly But it was an intentionally done kind of character note for, for Thomas Jefferson Again, the king is just oh my God. pure musical theater There's so much musical theater in this Obviously, there's, there's a lot of musical theater in it Because it's musical theater But it's it's hip hop, but it's also Lin Manuel Miranda is a musical theater nerd. Oh, to the nines, to oh. the nines, it's crazy. Absolutely, and the the thing that if there's one thing stylistically that drives me crazy about Hamilton that I kind of hate. Uh oh. And this is the only way that Liam can make Hamilton better is that he puts a stinger on the end of every song he can reasonably justify it with. And that is when you finish the song and then it does the at the end over and over and over again, every single song ends with one of those. It's that is the Wilhelm scream of musical (laughs) theater. It it originally started as a thing, but then it comes just, if you're not doing it tongue in cheek, it comes off as like a little bit like, really? That's kind of cheesy, but they do it so often and it just wants me, it makes me want to put my head through a wall. (laughs) I was going to say, speaking of, uh, I think the funniest character in the play, which is King George III and his, the whole performance by uh, Jonathan Groff, I was looking him up when I was watching with Jackie and I'm like, oh, look, he's from Pennsylvania. He's from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and Jackie immediately jumps on me and she's like, 
if you go to Pennsylvania or anywhere near Philly and say like that, they'll kill you. It's Lincoln. And I was like, what? I'm like, why is everything in Pennsylvania so fucking weird? <laughs> so you can you can come to Western Pennsylvania and call it Lancaster all day long. Oh, OK, I'm sorry. And we will not fight you on it <laughs> because Eastern Pennsylvania is a completely different animal. Right. <laughs> of course. How could I forget? Yeah. Just just <laughs> go over there and try to pronounce Wilkesbury properly uh, according to that i don't even know it's it looks like wilkes bar but it's like b-a-r-r-e and they call it wilkes berry and i'm like what the fuck are you talking about just go eat a cheesesteak you fuck (laughs) miranda said that he uh, was inspired to write the songs with the king on his i believe that was the one that happened on his honeymoon and he um thought of it as like uh, the british invasion so that's why the King songs sound like that is because he's mimicking that 1950s, 60s, you know, the Beatles and all the other Brit rock. That shit was so funny. And I yes. didn't know, like, I didn't know the history or any of the background behind the whole, like, him spitting up and the very obvious spittle that comes out of his mouth. And I was like, what? That was just a coincidence. Really? That was just how that actor performs. Yeah, he says, he says, oh, yeah, I'm just a spitter. That happens on stage sometimes, by the way. Interesting, because someone was telling me that George III was actually known to be a spitter. Like, he was a really loud talker, and he tended to spit a lot. So if that was a coincidence, yeah. it was a really fortuitous coincidence, because it really fits the character. Sells it? Yeah, it really does. The other anecdote that I heard about George III in relation to this play, and I cannot attest to the veracity of this, but I heard it and I'm going to repeat it. After Lin-Manuel Miranda had decided to include George III and give him musical numbers, he was like trying to figure out exactly what he would write for him. And he was actually having lunch with Hugh Laurie and Hugh Laurie you know, he was like, what do you think when all of this is happening and they, they sign the declaration of independence and they, they start this revolution. What do you think George the third's response would have been? What was his take on it? And Hugh Laurie thinks for a second and he just looks up and he goes, you'll be back. <laughs> you'll be back. Soon you'll see. You remember you belong to me. Whereas in real life, King George III's response was basically to send a letter to the colonies saying, that's nice. Uh, You all need to surrender right now and you're going to be executed for treason. Like that was King George III's response. Yeah. (laughs) He was the guy, don't care what you're talking about. Now you all die. I don't think he had a sense of humor about it. (laughs) I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. Uh, apparently, and I'll provide this one only because I know Katie and Liam are going to come up with most of the stage anecdotes, but I was reading that the idea behind the costumes was period appropriate from the neck down and then hairstyles and everything above more modern. And that's why you see, you know, different style different, more modern hairstyles. But apparently King George III's outfit was as period accurate as you could possibly get for obviously his fancy like portrait outfits. Right, right. Well, that crown, the crown weighed 20 pounds, which is why he started walking like that. When in he the walked, play? In the play, his crown was 20 pounds. Wow. And that's why when he comes out, he's doing that very, very fancy, exaggerated walk where he's just like trying not to move anything but his legs. And I, I learned this in an interview with him 
it was purely utilitarian <laughs> and he just tried to make it work for the character. But, and this is what happens when you're, when you're in Hamilton, all these famous people came to see the show and they would then, you know, oftentimes if they're famous enough, they would come backstage and meet people. Well, Beyonce and Jay-Z were there oh, sitting God. front row and the show went great and they came back and he said they were so nice and they were like so complimentary to everybody and they stopped to say hi to absolutely everyone. And he said when, Be- when Beyonce got to him, she said, I am going to steal your walk. And he just went <laughs> and like completely just like freaked out. That was the only show. That was the only time that Lin-Manuel Miranda got sick. That was the only one that during his performance that he missed was oh, the no. Bay and Jay-Z one. What shame. Uh, and he apparently had like a 104 degree fever and his wife was like, you're not going anywhere. He's like, I can do this. I can, I can do it. <laughs> It's fine. That's the only time his understudy got to step up and do it, which I would guess is probably one of the members of the chorus. But So this might be a good time to lead into a little bit of the history behind the show and what was going on and the real portrayal versus the history. Katie, do you want to lead us into that? Yeah, so Miranda was very open about the fact that he was changing all this stuff. And I believe his book that he wrote about this, I think it's Hamilton, A Revolution, or a book that was written about it. He goes into pretty great detail about this is why I did this and that. And one of the most amusing changes he made is that in this, he only has one kid. That dude had seven children. Mm-hmm. Well, there is a daughter that's mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, true. yes, but but we never see her, which isn't necessary for the play. But no. it's that the time frame of when he came to the country, the relationship between him and Aaron Burr is a little exaggerated. Like he didn't meet Aaron Burr quite that early. He didn't get to know quite a, some of the men that he was like Lafayette and one of the other men. He didn't get to know them until he was made an aide de camp to Washington the specifics of this are very wiggly and some of it's time condensation where he meets right. three of them at the same time in the same bar all in one night, which is not how it really right. happened. But you know, that makes sense for the purposes of speeding things up and making things make sense. But I think the biggest change in this is, is uh, about um, Angelica and that she is, she was married at the time that she met Hamilton and already had at least one child. And he was very infatuated with her, but she shut that shit down. Um, And like their trip to uh, when they try to get him to come for the summer, like none of that ever happened. So it's definitely some license taken. And the politics aspect of it is is also pretty wiggly. But weirdly enough, the Reynolds paper part of it, pretty, pretty accurate. Pretty spot on. He did it. He did indeed. I'm going to write a whole paper about this and I'm going to release it to the public so everybody knows I'm not an embezzler. I just like to cheat on my wife. Yeah, he was, interestingly, Alexander Hamilton was very much a person to a certain extent where honor and integrity and reputation were the most important thing to him, at least when it came to his reputation and it not being tarnished. And he was a loudmouth. He talked a lot. He was very vocal about the things he believed in as opposed to Jefferson and Burr who tended to be 
better politicians. They knew when to keep quiet and keep their motivations to themselves more. And that always kind of played against Hamilton. But essentially, he was born in the Caribbean and was an orphan, was taken in by a merchant, but he didn't really come out of status like a lot of the other people in the room. Yeah, he had so nothing. So I think that plays a huge part in the character, both in the play and the real person, in terms of Hamilton's motivations and how he went through life. He was extremely intelligent and, you know, went to Princeton for a little bit, eventually became a lawyer. But his writing skill in a famous letter where he described a hurricane that ravaged the island he was on uh, famously kind of got him a ticket to the U.S. because people saw his writing ability and realized that he had talent. But he was going to need to marry into a family of status, which eventually he did. And the other way that people at the time would sort of not leapfrog, but gain some real status in society was through fighting in a war. So the military and the Revolutionary War was a huge part of Hamilton bringing his status up and becoming famous, even though he wasn't a blue blood, essentially, and didn't come from these rich families. And so I, he wasn't an aristocrat, wasn't an aristocrat. which was a, a huge knock against him at the time. Exactly. And so you see that driving force behind Hamilton the whole time you can feel. Well, it. not to not to trivialize anything, but I think there is a, a similar viewpoint of sports in our country today that if you can play basketball or you can play football or there's some kind of athletic thing that we value enough you can go from nothing to an aristocratic status at the expense of your own body sometimes uh for a lot of especially in football that it's you know just it's going to be a short career and you are going to break yourself down throughout it but if you happen to be one of the few that gets up to that echelon, you're going to be rich beyond your wildest dreams. And there, I think a lot of arguments can be made that sports are a modern analogy for the role war fighting and combat has played in society for thousands of years. Sports have always been a parallel. We've always had sports and games and competition of some sort. But, you know, the two rival football teams facing off in an arena with a crowd, I mean, that is the modern equivalent of a battle. Well, and sport used to be, like in the days of, you know, ancient Rome, sport used to be actual mock battles that they would have these people do. Mock naval battles were my personal favorite that they did. Let's just flood the Colosseum and have little boats. Everybody will have fun. Are you not entertained? But I think the biggest changes that they made that we should address is the fact that Hamilton was absolutely not an abolitionist. And he did participate in the slave trade with his father-in-law and did not write any treaties against slavery that are recorded at least. So that was a huge change that Miranda made. And I... I can see why he makes the change, because he is going for a specific tone and a almost reimagining of our history. And like I said in my mission briefing, it is about who Hamilton could have been. Also, George Washington was not black. There's also that. (gasps) What? (laughs) What? Neither was Thomas Jefferson. So what did I miss? What did I miss? I think... When we mention slavery in the context of this particular time period, it is 
probably one of the most confusing and controversial time periods ever in the history of the country in relation to slavery. And that's despite the fact that we fought a civil war over it. See our episode on Gettysburg. Meaning that when they were drafting the Constitution, these conversations came up and there was discussion about whether freeing slaves was something that needed to be put on paper and put into the Constitution, put into the Bill of Rights. And in the end, they decided to scrap that idea because I think the most interesting thing about this time period is that you have a bunch of colonists who are either immigrants or British citizens that are natural born British citizens. They were born somewhere else, often in the colonies, sometimes in Europe, but they were all subjects of the crown and British citizens. And this idea of this new American country and the founding of it, it was really messy. It wasn't something clean and where we look back on it today and look at the Constitution with all its amendments and the Bill of Rights. Yeah, that all happened kind of piece by piece and often involved people drinking and arguing into late hours of the night. And some of that is shown in the play. But these discussions about what is this country going to be about? What system do we want to employ? The differences between federalism versus states' rights. Hamilton and Jefferson were on opposing sides of those two arguments. And if you don't read about it, it's kind of a foregone conclusion that the country ended up where it did. But at the time, there was a lot of discussion back and forth. And so the fact that Washington had slaves and Jefferson had slaves, those things came up and were talked about because people felt differently about abolition, about slavery, and about what all men are created equal actually meant. So it's not that people were oblivious to this or didn't discuss it at the time. It's just that we ended up with, you know, the finalized version of these documents. But it'd be really interesting to read more about what actually went on in these conversations. And of course, something that also comes up if you do any research on this is the Federalist Papers, which I think were 85 or 87 total essays, basically trying to explain the Constitution while trying to pass it so that people could read these. They were published. Uh, Hamilton wrote 51 of them. John Jay wrote several and Madison wrote the rest. So those are the three men involved. But Hamilton wrote most of them because, again, he's a very eloquent writer. The idea of whether slavery was right was not a foregone conclusion at the time. No, and the it's kind of the the easiest thing to not really brush off, but you know, to say that George Washington owned slaves and that Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, it doesn't really quite capture how shitty they were in their slave owning. A lot of the the take now is that Thomas Jefferson, when I first heard about Sally Hemings, we always heard about Sally Hemings as the slave that Thomas Jefferson had a romantic relationship with. Mm. But now it's much more like, oh, she was property. That's rape. So Thomas Jefferson raped his slaves. And she gets brought up. She gets a bare mention in this, which I found interesting mm -hmm. when Jefferson comes home. She does. She gets a little shout out. Sally, can you open the letter? It's kind of cute. Little little wink. Little wink to Sally. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, that's uncomfortable. And, you know, George Washington's famous false teeth weren't made out of wood. They were made out of teeth that were extracted from his slaves to replace his teeth 
that had fallen out of his head. Some of them. The truth behind George Washington's teeth is more complicated. There were some definitely human slave teeth in there. There were also horse teeth and ivory, like like actual uh, sculpted teeth in there. That thing was like an atrocious horror show of a mess. That's one slave tooth too many. If there was one slave tooth in there, that's one slave tooth too many. Oh, oh. no, I'm not excusing it. I'm I'm saying his mouth was a lot more of a horror show than even you were describing. I just wanted to give it its due because it could have its own horror film that you could do uh, on Fright Post. George Washington collecting the teeth for his mouth. Yeah, imagine you made a, a, like a horror movie about <sighs> one of those little wind-up... Uh, uh, mouths that collapse up and down, teeth. but it's George Washington's mm-hmm. teeth, like a replica. Imagine the horror movie you can make out of that. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the actual way that this was technically put together, because again, from my experience, I just see an awesome play. I don't necessarily know how much of it is brand new innovation, how much of it is standard. But from things I've seen, I know that awards have been won for the costume design, the production design, the setup of the stage is really cool. I'm sure everyone noticed that there are also two concentric circles essentially in the middle of the stage that can be spun in different directions. And I know that sort of added to the storytelling. Liam, the first time you saw this, what were the things that struck you in terms of how it was put together? It's brilliantly staged. First, like, let me just start there. That it, and that's all done from the director, right? That is by and large going to be done from the director. It's a, a a tough thing to describe the level of collaboration that goes into a play, and I can't even begin to fathom what the delineation of responsibilities are at the Broadway level. Yeah, who are like the top three people involved? Because I'm guessing director and choreographer have a lot to do with it. And the producer, isn't it? So producer, whoever is like producing the play, is kind of the end all be all. Second to the producer, and this is how it's different than in Hollywood, if they have a dramatist's guild contract, is the playwright. The playwright has a lot more power in theater than they do than the writer does out in Hollywood. The the dramatist guild contract puts them on footing with the producer. So if they don't like the director, they can fire them. Like the playwright can fire the director. <laughs> like they have they have a say over pretty much all aspects. If something isn't working for them, they can nix it. Then you have the director who is by and large going to be in in charge of the staging, the acting, the acting coaching, the the blocking and those kind of relationships in a musical. You also have the musical director who's in charge of the singing and the performing of the choreographer who's in charge of the, you know, uh, obviously teaching all of the dances and going through all of the dances with everybody. Then you have the set designer and the lighting designer and the costume designer and the props designer. I said three, Liam. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> I just thought, well, you're going to get what you're going to get, Dan. Well, the, there's so much. And then you get into things like, okay, so if there's a, if there's a clock on the wall, is that the responsibility of the set designer or is that under the purview of the props master? If it's a clock that a character like takes off of the wall and smashes, then it's probably a props thing. 
So there's a, a lot of weird like mishmash there. I wouldn't say that this play did much that was revolutionary as far as the staging goes. The the idea of a turntable in the floor is really, really old. It's been around forever. I've built them um, in in college. Wait, I've seen a when I've seen a couple like Phantom of the Opera has a couple of really big moving pieces. Billy Elliot has the bed that comes out of the center of the floor and all the moving stuff. So I didn't think so, but I thought they used it very purposefully. They used it really well. The way they used it wasn't too terribly dissimilar from if you've seen Singing in the Rain. There's the Broadway melody scene mm-hmm. with the, it, it's not a turntable, but it's like a conveyor belt that he's like walking along and then like somebody will pass by him and then he'll like just stop and move with them. And so it, it was utilized in a lot of that kind of way. I haven't personally seen like two concentric turntables turning in opposite directions. Um, so I thought it was cool. I don't know if it was necessarily crazy innovative. There might have been other instances of that prior that I don't know about, you know, and then you have like the stairs that move across the stage, people moving the stairs around Mm -hmm. like it's Hogwarts, you know, that is again, something that is cool and technically done in a very excellent way. Like nobody got run over, nobody fell off the thing, you know, they, everything went very smoothly. So it didn't bring a whole lot new to the table in that respect. But everything that it did, it did really well. Most of the innovation of this was in the writing and the music and the performance. Yeah, I know one of the things they did, and again, I have no idea if it's new from this or been done before, but they use the concentric turntable circles when a couple of times they rewind time to tell you part of the story and they start to turn them in a different direction. So I know that I believe counterclockwise was forward direction and clockwise was rewinding. I could be wrong about that, but I that was a nice touch. And of course, they add lighting and freeze frames when Hamilton's son Philip is shot in the duel. They did a exceptional, I thought, choreography of sort of the moment he shot turns the scene to slow motion and he's kind of falling over slowly and then gets picked up and, you know, the lighting turns blue and yeah, I mean, like you said, some of the a lot of these things might not be might not have been invented for this play, but they're executed brilliantly. And I think they put a lot of thought into the choreography with this as well, which I'm sure they do for everything. That's why you hire a whole person to design it for you who works with a bunch of other people to make it all work. But when it comes to like the example that they gave was how Aaron Burr walks in straight lines. His movements are very angular, whereas Hamilton moves in arcs and in more rounded, mm-hmm. concentric things. And that was how Lin-Manuel Miranda thought about the characters as they are doing their individual styles. So I think that's really well done in that it seemed like all of the pieces came together. And from what I could tell, this was something that you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda was big before this in the theater scene for In the Heights. And then he was doing this and he was slowly developing it. And he caught the eye of the leader of the public, which is a well-known theater in New York. And that guy helped him really develop it. And they did this over workshops and with multiple different people all contributing so much. And it 
feels that way of a play. It's obvious that Miranda is kind of the mastermind of the whole thing. But then there's so many other people's contributions. Like David Diggs is the original person who did that role of Lafayette and uh, Jefferson because he knew Miranda from previous. And Chris Jackson is uh, who's George Washington. Like he was told in a performance of um, In the Heights, him and Miranda were doing the performance together and they came off stage for a moment. Miranda's like, hey, I'm thinking of doing this this new thing with the, with Hamilton. He's like, oh, that sounds good. What part am I going to play? And then they go back out on stage. And then it's not for like another week. Somebody, one of the, I think the the director uh, who also had worked with uh, Miranda on In the Heights calls him and he's like, hey, G-Man, how's it going? And he's like, what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? And he's like, didn't he tell you? Playing George Washington. And he was like, no. Nobody told me I had this. So, you know, like these are for the most part, these are people who all were friends of Miranda and or previous co-workers. So I think the reason for the success of this is for of the play part of it, not necessarily the cultural impact or anything like that, is because of all these great artists coming together and each contributing part of it to make the play become more than the sum of its parts. And that's how a lot of these things happen in theater is a lot of the, when you're, when you're trying to create something new out of kind of nothing, you go to your friends and the people that you've worked with and you're comfortable with, like you're just, it is those kind of conversations that are just like, Oh, Hey, I have a funny idea about a thing. Oh yeah, that sounds like a good idea. And then like two years later, you get a call that's like, Hey, remember that funny thing? No, I was drunk. Oh, well you were into it at the time. Are you still into it? Like that is sort of the, like I've talked to people at at cast parties about a thing and then hit them up to audition for it like two years later. And they reminded me of that conversation before because I'd completely forgot about it because I was the drunk one. That's just how these things go sometimes. Right. And and part of it is just the kind of standard sort of uh, nepotism isn't exactly the right word. But, you know, you're you're familiar and close or friends with someone. You're way more likely to stick out your neck for them and give them a job opportunity. But I think more importantly, and of course, this happens in cinema and any other art, when you've built a team and worked together with them before and you know their work ethic, and you know their talent, but more importantly, you know how they work with other people and how they work with you if you're going to be the director, producer, whatever, you're way more likely to pick people that you've had on the team before. I think uh, Christopher Nolan's a good example. He tends to work with the same actors over and over again because you develop a relationship. Yeah, there's Paul Thomas Anderson, Quentin Tarantino, Wes Anderson. They Mm -hmm, all, mm -hmm. like, it feels like that's kind of how auteurs tend to do things. And Miranda is definitely an auteur. And his, and I mean, it's not even necessarily just him because him and Thomas Kale, who was the director of this, really came together. Like one of the first performances they did of this was at the White House because Miranda was being honored for In the Heights. And Miranda performs a little bit of uh, My Shot. And Thomas Kale is the guy playing the piano for him. Very cool. They seem to be very compatible uh, co-creators because they also developed in the Heights together is my understanding. I could be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure that's accurate. It's interesting because theater is such a small world in comparison to Hollywood. Like when you get to this level of theater, it feels like where you're like 
breathing that rarefied air where celebrities are coming to your every performance and that mind-boggling level of success. Theater is always a small world. Yeah, that's... No matter where you go, like in Pittsburgh, it's a small world. Yeah. I mean, like Leslie Odom Jr., he got into the play by getting into like one of the very first things of it. And he had like the last seat available and he immediately contacted them and was like, I I would very much like to be involved in this, actually. That would be fantastic. And they were like... Yes. I like that casting choice. He also has a little bit of a lisp, which I thought was cool that I'm like, oh, cool. They gave one of the main parts to someone who has a slight lisp. And again, his performance is amazing. But yeah, you know, you could see easily see someone like that being turned down for a part like that just because of that fact. That man is so good. I don't know if anybody's seen One Night in Miami. Not yet. It's on my list. He plays Sam Cooke. Oh, cool. I love Sam Cooke. In One Night in Miami. And... Not only is he great in the role, but when he sings, he mimics Sam Cooke's style. Oh, perfect. Perfectly. And it's it's creepy. <laughs> like He's so good. He's so good that he can do like Aaron Burr and Sam Cooke. I was born by the river. In a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running I know there are still a few listeners hanging on here who are not into musicals and this is not their thing. And as soon as this popped up uh, as a preview in the la- at the end of the last episode, people were like, what the hell? Why are they doing a musical? This is a war film podcast. So this is not a question that we ask of every single episode because it would be unnecessary and repetitive, but this seems like the perfect time to ask Liam, who picked this film, the question, is this a war film? One could argue that this isn't a film at all. <laughs> and, and you would be correct. But beyond that, I want to get into why we decided to put this on here and get into a little bit of the war film part of it. I think it is. I think it, I, I wouldn't have suggested it if I didn't think that it qualifies. The entire first act deals with the revolution, granted having very highly stylized and choreographed depictions of it, but there are at least three different battles that happen during the course of the first act. That's, you know, when... Hamilton and company steal the cannons in New York, the the Battle of Monmouth, and then also the Battle of Yorktown. And they're all like distinct, different set pieces and moments in, in the story. But there was so much that this gets into about the revolution. And the revolution is not heavily depicted in any like really good movies um, that, are, that are out there. The American Revolution is just not absolutely lousy with uh with great cinema that's because once mel gibson made the patriot it was game over nobody else ever had to make a revolution movie ever again oh yeah it was just done so well that (laughs) that everybody else just packed it up sorry i had to dan does not speak for the podcast so that's a, a perfect example the patriot is horseshit and has no basis in like almost anything historical or otherwise but it really doesn't get into any of the the politics of the conflict or the internal fighting between the members of the conflict. These guys were fighting duels and shooting each other during the war. 
like it's it's kind of baffling to 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 think about but it really tied in i felt nicely with some of the discussion that we had about the wind that shakes the barley how you have these different factions and different ideas all competing what we see more in this in act two that we don't necessarily see in the wind that shakes the barley is you know as as the king's second song goes what comes next now that you've won your your independence what are you going to do with it and that's where a lot of you know you can get very cynical or very patriotic about the whole process but it really had a golden opportunity to just fold like a house of cards just like absolutely collapse on itself and for better or worse it didn't it, they they put this framework be it perfect or imperfect they put this framework in place that has lasted over 200 years and as you were saying earlier dan it really was not a foregone conclusion so i think that this is probably the best depiction that i've seen of that in a popular medium that could pass as a film at all now granted this is almost more of like a concert film it's a stage performance and a film of that stage performance but i mean i can't think of a better war film of this period katie for our purposes yes this is a war film because our podcast likes to talk about all aspects of war not just you know down in the trenches combat situations and this is one of this really covers very well the political aspects of a war, which when you're fighting a revolution, and especially when you win that revolution, is really the biggest and most important part of the war outside of, you know, the winning, because that is going to set the stage for what comes next, how we're going to govern. And as they put it many times in all of the documentaries I watched about this, uh, the American experiment you know, still continues to this day. That's what we're constantly battling, even up to, you know, the election that happened last Tuesday. So it's very much a war film because it shows the people who fought and then why they fought down to their deepest political and moral belief systems, and then how those moral belief systems can be swayed or destroyed based on their experiences either in the war or afterwards so i think it definitely qualifies and it's not traditional but that's to me one of the most interesting things to do is to talk about how war affects everything not just the soldiers or the combat that's happening it affects everything so and this is one that shows more the political sides of how war can affect our world. I agree. I think the scope of this project was always to try and look at war from different angles. And luckily, we have all these creative artists and filmmakers who have done that work for us. Our job is just to sit here and read about it and watch them and talk about what they did. And for listeners who might be new to our show, we promise you that we put a lot of effort into trying to balance these out. We will have plenty of combat in the trenches with gore, etc. 
But to be honest, so far, the film that we've done that this reminds me the most of in terms of the is this a war film question was actually Argo. Completely different films that have nothing to do with each other. And this is a totally different format. But I remember that we asked that question during that episode because it was like, okay, there's no real combat here. And this is more diplomats and spies dealing with an aggressive militarized government and a revolution. But there's no actual war depicted in this. But I remember that we talked about sort of the political machinations and what was going on behind the scenes. And and I think this qualifies in that same way. Now, I do have a few small criticisms of Hamilton. And again, that's small with a lowercase s because I acknowledge this being a spectacular film. And maybe I'll save those for my breakdown. But I I did feel that the war scene, the battle scenes could have included a little more pyro and a little bit more just throwing a bone to the audience to really let them know, like, you know, a prop cannon firing off some smoke with a loud boom would have been nice, in my opinion, just to really delineate that this is a combat scene, quote unquote. Even though it's done highly stylized, the motivations of all these leaders and politicians during the time of the Revolutionary War and the Whiskey Rebellion and, you know, the eight different battles that Hamilton participated in that this covers, or that discovered a couple of them, I think is really important because it shows you the motivation behind these leaders. What did Washington actually want? What did Hamilton want? What did Jefferson want? Whiskey Rebellion happened in my neighborhood. Oh, that's crazy. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, it was like a mile over that way. That makes sense. Another, another, intri- I, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I will. Right. We know that statement means nothing on this show, so. Another little local shout out is there's a a reference that George Washington makes to his early days and how he led his men into a massacre. The reference there is to the debacle at Fort Necessity, which happened in Latrobe, which oh. is just outside of Pittsburgh as well. Nice. And again, we mentioned it earlier, but Hamilton being someone who was not of high birth and wanting to prove himself combat was one of the places where he was going to be able to prove himself and a war for someone like that is a time of opportunity wars don't just come up all the time necessarily although it certainly seems that way hamilton was someone who led from the front and was willing to get into combat and lead men so much so that he begged george washington for an assignment and even left his cabinet at one point because he was just frustrated with not being able to actually lead men in combat eventually he was given that assignment interestingly hamilton's unit which was first uh, battalion fifth field artillery unit is the only revolutionary war unit that still exists to this day so that is an actual army artillery unit nowadays just kind of cool because I'm sure when those young kids join that unit and are being given a brief on the history of the unit that Alexander Hamilton must come up as the young captain um, who led that unit in combat early on in the siege and battle of Yorktown is, is one of the places, which was also the last major land engagement of the war. That's basically where the British gave up and lost the revolutionary war. What comes next? You've been freed. Do you know how hard it is to lead? You're on your own. Awesome. Wow. Do you have a clue what happens now? There wasn't a whole lot of theater criticism or film criticism given of this, but there was definitely a bit of 
sociological and historical criticism based around Hamilton. And the biggest ones are beyond the racist ideals of having these characters be portrayed by not white people. And I'm, I won't touch that because that's to me isn't valid. But where it gets into the idea that there is a certain kind of historian where we talk about like the great old men, where we focus our history on Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, blah, 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 all of these founding fathers and talk about our history in terms of what they accomplished as opposed to what the country accomplished. And we kind of hero worship them to a certain extent. And that does not give us a accurate or wide ranging picture of what actually brought about the revolution and how it was perpetrated. And that is not necessarily my view, but that was the criticisms that were levied against this because it did feel kind of like it romanticizes Hamilton, especially in the light of talking about him as being so much more against slavery than he actually was in real life. And that is digging deep into the history side of things. And I believe somebody actually wrote a whole book. But yes, yeah, somebody actually did somebody write wrote a-, a play about it. Did they? Yeah, it was a play called uh, The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda. Yes, that's it. <laughs> yeah, and it was like Lin-Manuel yeah. Miranda like trying to write this and like all of these ghosts of people who were involved in the revolution come back and like yell at him. That's pretty cool. Yeah, there's, there was definitely some very interesting criticism of how this came about. And I'll get into my breakdown how I feel about that. But what do you guys think? Do you feel like that's a valid criticism? So... I I think that it is not necessarily my place to say that that is an invalid criticism because most of the mm-hmm. people who I've personally heard take that viewpoint have been people of color that are like, hey, this is not good enough. And a lot of this, Hamilton came along in a, very strange five-year period and a very turbulent five-year period. The country that we are living in now is not exactly the same country that we were in when Hamilton came out in 2015. So it had a few things working against it in this respect. You know, we've had the... Black Lives Matter movement began very shortly thereafter. I think like almost immediately, it might've started just like a little bit before Hamilton debuted on Broadway, but it has really that whole landscape of how we talk about race in this country and what we, what standards we want people to hold themselves to in terms of racial equality and social justice are not the same as they were in 2014, 2015. Things haven't all aged at the same rate over the past 20 years. You know what I mean? It's like, I don't know that Hamilton's been able to keep up. A lot of people of color are like, hey, this is not good enough as far as representation goes. Just having these old racist white men played by young, not racist people of color is not doing the job that we need you to do. And I don't know that I necessarily feel that way about it, 
but it's a viewpoint that I am not prepared to fight them on. If somebody has that, that viewpoint of it. I'm not a particular fan of that viewpoint, but I agree with you in the sense that I don't know that it's my place to fight someone from a different demographic background than me about how they feel about the way history is being depicted. We try really hard, really, to not talk modern politics too much on this podcast unless we know that it relates to the material. And this is an example of, I think, a classic exception where you can't but draw parallels to present time in the U.S. because this play and this story is so much about the ideals that our country was founded on, which we have missed the mark on from the birth of this country till now in different ways and in varying degrees. So that's been a constant process here. And I think that where you balance out the idealism behind the founding of this country versus what we've practically been able to accomplish, there's a spectrum there. Me being more of a centrist than a moderate, I really dislike the concept of that's not good enough. Because to me, when I see progress and then when I see movement away from a certain direction, especially in the arts, I like that, meaning I I look more at the positive than the not good enough part of that. If we were talking about how is the history of our country being depicted like in public schools in your state, for example, I think that's a different argument. And I think that you can put a lot more pressure on the system when it is not being accurate or it is whitewashing things. When you're putting together a dramatic storytelling that is going to fudge some things to give the biggest impact, etc. Like I know Lincoln got some similar criticisms because Lincoln often gets depicted as like the grand abolitionist, etc. And it turns out like, eh, I don't think it's that clear that Lincoln didn't really think that black slaves were inferior to white people, but it was more about politics and et cetera. So it's like, you can get into the nitty gritty, but it's also I think it's always really easy to look back in history and apply modern morality to a time period that was totally different than ours. And that gets really tricky. So I I can only talk so long about threading that needle here. But I think that often people do not read history enough and look into it and just apply their lifespan and their experiences to a period from 300 years ago. And that's not always a one-to-one translation. So For me, something like this gives me the curiosity, kind of like we talked about in The Wind That Shakes the Barley, where I'm like, right, I should know better than to take my historical information from works of fiction and in general from Hollywood or theater. What it should do, hopefully, is spike my curiosity and make me read a book about the Irish you know, rebellions of the 1920s or the Irish War for Independence or about Alexander Hamilton. And that's where I can be more choosy about looking into who is this historian that is writing that this book, where do they come from? What are their biases and what, what other opposite view do I need to make sure that I look at, but I'm not going to hold a stage play responsible for all of those things because it's a very specific medium. So, you know, if you're going to complain about something like that on one of the plays that has like the most diverse cast ever, for example, where it's not a bunch of white people running around on stage. It's kind of like, all right, but can we level our criticism a little, like, can we focus it to things that really need it as opposed to shitting on something that to me is doing a, 
a net positive and is a good thing. Again, I'm not an underprivileged person in this country, so I cannot speak for those groups, and I'm certainly not telling them that their opinion is wrong. I'm just saying, to me, progress is progress, and I appreciate what this is trying to do. But we are talking about, again, extremely complex issues, but when you look back at the Hamiltonian versus Jeffersonian sort of concept of what the Constitution was about and what the country was about, I really found some comfort in the fact that arguments that you see, you know, online with your friends and family in modern politics have been here since the beginning of the founding of this country. Hamilton feared anarchy and thought in terms of order. There are letters where he wrote about the dangers of democracy and sort of the unthinking populace. And he thought that the, you know, senators should be elected for life, etc. So he was a lot more of an authoritarian in that way versus Jefferson, who feared tyranny and thought in terms of freedom. I found some comfort in the fact that the people that were trying to make these documents concise and legible and something that the colonists would understand and the delegates would vote for is, I think, a commendable effort and something that really, without romanticizing things, had never been done before in the history of the world. The American Constitution as an ideal is a very unique thing that has not been done exactly like that ever. Full of flaws, it was amended almost immediately, right? The, the, there's, you know, however, 24, 25 amendments to the Constitution over time, but the first 10, the Bill of Rights, was written right away because they realized certain things weren't addressed. So, you know, an imperfect union is a word that comes up a lot. Very, very complicated history and complicated issues that I think Americans think about in a very specific way because of where we grew up and what we've been taught. African Americans and Native Americans are going to have an even more specific microcosm of the way they look at this because of the history of their families and what happened to them in this country. The the vibe that I'm starting to get from popular culture, I think is that Hamilton is, if it wasn't from the start, it has, it has quickly become, uh, for lack of a better term, white people shit. Yeah. So have you guys seen the movie Get Out? Yeah. Yes. There's the, the repeated line of, I would have voted for Obama for a third term. Yes. There is a yes. similar identification that I noticed in Knives Out. The obviously racist father drops a immigrants. We get the job done from Hamilton, right? Did you, did you see it? No, I haven't seen it. Oh, <laughs> <Right>? well, <laughs> I saw it twice. Like you know, like that. And it's one of those things that it's it's like, oh, I can't be racist. I love Hamilton, and that has all sorts of people of color. And I think that's that is also something that prevented me from seeing this until now is because. It is very much a, before it's a white people thing, it is a rich people thing. And the thing is, it's just, there is a heavy propensity. If you are rich, you're probably also white because America. But it became such a class differentiated thing. You know, like in some of the documentaries, at least one of the actors jokes about how like, well, maybe you can cash in some of that 401k or not have a vacation so you can go see Hamilton. I'm thinking like, yeah, there are people who like this is their entire, you know, as I'm sure that this actor knew, this is their entire monthly income for them for 
two people. Because, I mean, tickets here were three, four hundred bucks. Cheap tickets were 200 or 180. And even getting them was still incredibly difficult with that. And I know that in this country, Broadway plays are always ridiculously overpriced. So unless you live in New York where you can do things like rush seating or that kind of thing where you can get them for more affordable, it becomes something that's like harder to swallow with Hamilton because it is trying to be such a play of the people, you know? But if that play of the people is only available to a certain upper echelon, or the few who get lucky enough in the lottery that they have every day. It's a lot harder to swallow, I think, that it is this revolutionary idea when it's like, well, is it really if only certain certain people get to see it? And it's my kind of final takeaway on this particular topic is I was lucky enough to attend a lecture from a Harvard professor who specializes in racial disparities and microaggressions. Mm, that'd be fascinating. And one of the, it was a, a, an absolutely fascinating lecture, but one of the things that he said for, for people that, you know, it's like, Hey, you, you want to, to stop yourself from being this type of person. You want to check your own microaggressions that you might not even be aware of. One of the things that he said, surround yourself with positive examples of black people. Like, hang a picture in your office of a black person that you have positive connotations with. Just, like, immerse yourself in it a little bit. And that's kind of the benefit that I see of something like Hamilton. They say representation matters for myriad reasons. You know, especially when something like Hamilton, which has been so hard to see, comes to a streaming service like Disney Plus that so many people have access to. It does good for young people of color to see people who look like them up on stage having these discussions and playing these roles. But also, it probably does help shift just sort of the general consciousness of white people, which is why white people seem to just flock to it like catnip. That it's, I, I think that the net positive is greater than the overall possible negatives of some of its shortcomings, but again, it is perhaps not as progressive as people wanted it to be or want to believe that it is. Yeah. And what a perfect analogy for our country. Right. This this play is imperfect and not as progressive as some people would like it to be, but it's also a step in the right direction. <laughs> You're right, Dan. It is the perfect embodiment of the guy who wrote the Declaration of Independence being a slave owner who raped his slaves. How do, you, how do you marry those two concepts? And you have to include both of them to have the full discussion. You don't get to the Emancipation Proclamation without the Constitutional Convention and without the founding of our nation, without the Revolutionary War. All of these people are playing a part in something much bigger than them, which is often how foundings of nations are and often how revolutions and rebellions are. But I think it's especially true in our case. And again, there's plenty of things to criticize the US on in the same way where we criticize the British government in the last episode. But you still have to look 
in my opinion, you still have to look at the positive steps forward as a good net thing overall. And certainly putting this on Disney Plus and Miranda having to even curtail the two out of three F-bombs that were in here, otherwise it was going to get an R rating. But I think that making it available to the general public where you don't have to pay $400 to go see this, and yes, of course, it's not quite as great as watching it live, but I think the cinematography and the camera work and however they pulled all that off works really well. It's a very high-quality rendition of it, and that's great because that makes it available to people on a seven-day free trial or for seven bucks a month or whatever. And now it's time for the breakdown, where we ask, what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Liam, you go first. So I think this, we we touched on a, a, a lot of this already. This started out as a rap concept album and then turned into a stage play that was based on a nonfiction book, on a biography about not an obscure founding father, but one who really doesn't get a lot of press prior to this. I mean, it it wasn't so long ago that if you asked just dude on the street who was on the $10 bill, there's an excellent chance that they wouldn't be able to tell you. And there was actually, when Hamilton came out, there was a lot of talk about taking Hamilton off of the $10 bill. And then that talk got scrapped because of how popular Hamilton suddenly got. So it's weird the kind of impact in real world money that this had uh, just on the on the culture and the zeitgeist as a whole. And I think the objective of this was to make American history accessible and entertaining to a broad audience, a new audience of theater goers, and to kind of challenge what we think of when we think of the founding fathers. We we have a tendency to to carve them all out of ivory or stone on the side of a mountain that is a holy place for indigenous peoples. Whoa, well, I never did. I thought it happened way before I was born. And that and that's just kind of how we always think of them. Who is this we? As, as these mythic figures. And this wanted to humanize them and bring them down to our level and have them speak in a vernacular of America today, specifically in the language of hip hop, most of all. And I think it did that. I think it accomplished its goal. If that was its objective, then I'd say that it it was right on target. You you can't have a discussion about the Constitution without it turning into some kind of debate or some kind of argument. So it is not surprising, really, that there are so many different takes and different ways that you can take Hamilton. You know, I, I think, Dan, in the early on, you were talking about it really appealing to a new generation of theater goers and musical theater people. I can't remember who said the quote, but there was a a quote that the theater is the only institution that has been constantly dying for 4,000 years and it's still not (laughs) dead yet. There's always new shit coming out in the theater. It's never a sure thing, but it also hasn't gone anywhere. 
So I think this is just sort of like the next phase in that, in that continuing evolution of it. And we'll, we'll see what comes up next, but yeah, I mean, I stingers notwithstanding, I did love this. I do. I do love it. I, I love, I watched this with the kids and my, my daughter, Isabel in particular is bonkers for this and watching her watch Hamilton over and over again is a delight. And there's always new shit that she's finding out as she's getting older. So the whole affair with Mrs. Reynolds really hit her on this rewatch in a way that it hadn't because she's a little more aware of those things to the point where she was watching the uh, say no to this scene. No, show me how to say no to this side. Don't know how to say no to this. In my mind, I'm trying to go. Then her mouth is on mine and I don't say no. And she's just you know, like hands on her, like fists on her hips going, this disgusts me. <laughs> and my wife and I lost it. We did not know what to do with ourselves. Uh, <laughs> she, I was like, Jesus good. Christ, the righteous indignation of a nine-year-old girl. Holy shit. It was, it was quite the sight to behold. Uh, but no, my, my kids absolutely love it. They sing all the songs. If these are the images that they take away of the founding fathers, then I am in favor of it. All right. So I found myself feeling the way I do for a lot of these episodes, but more so this time in terms of (laughs) the amount of history that was here and how prepared I felt to talk about it, which is to say not very. And I've got pages of notes. I drew out a timeline and it's like we barely ended up talking about most of it. Uh, Big thanks to Rich Stevens, who did his second episode of research in a row, but he was the only one who came through on Hamilton and gave us a little bit of a rundown on the battles and the history. So thank you, Richard. And again, for our researchers, uh, you know, we put this stuff out on surplus ordinance later, but don't feel bad if a lot of your facts don't make it onto the actual podcast. A lot of your job is to really inform us and give us some context to be able to have a good conversation about this. So sometimes it's really about giving us a better picture of what's going on so that we can talk about it more intelligently. I'm still really upset that we don't get to hear a Dave Feldman. Thomas Jefferson was a fuck boy rant. <laughs> I mean, that's what our group is for. You can go to the, di- I'll do that later. But anyways, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm on board with Liam. I think that the objective here was to Miranda, you know, it's like of the very small and few criticisms I could give of this. You can tell Miranda is not the greatest singer. He's much better at rapping and hip hop. And if you've ever seen him freestyle, you can watch him on like, say, uh, Jimmy Fallon and he can just take a topic and just start freestyling on it. He's an amazing rapper. Inevitably, I think he incorporated one of his huge talents into something with, I can only imagine, again, this idea of bringing more people towards the theater. Also, people who already go to theater bring them more into hip hop and jazz and into a little bit more of music that they, some of them probably don't listen to as well as sort of laying out a little bit of American history. I think that the language being uncomplicated, the references being accessible to different classes and different groups of people was a really smart move. I mean, we're talking about a play where 
Lemuel Miranda's character, Hamilton, quotes Macbeth in part of it, which I was very fortunate to be familiar with the lines because of Throne of Blood, of course, which we covered in an earlier episode. But then you have rap lyrics from the Notorious B.I.G. in like the next line or another character. And so I really loved the juxtaposition of more modern hip hop with also a play from the 1600s. Because again, the ideal behind this is you picture a very diverse audience with, you know, all kinds of colors and all kinds of uh, different classes in the audience. Now, whether that is what actually ended up happening, whether they ended up making enough available, uh, enough tickets available for cheap enough that lower class people could actually make it is a different story. But I also think that that's part of why this encompasses the American experience so well. Founded on some great ideals, imperfect execution, but I give it a lot of credit for what it's trying to do. So was it on target? Pretty close, I think, on the writing and performance end of it. I don't know exactly how theater companies work, but I think a hu- the second part of how successful they can be at that is all, I think, in the contracts of how the price of the tickets is written in, how many seats does the cast get to hand out to their friends and family, their little cousins, you know, stuff like that, which I imagine is kind of dependent on the production and the company and all that. And and in terms of what this series is about of these next four films, including this one about revolutions and rebellions, it's kind of like, we see this with the British. The British are good at winning wars. They're not as good at the interim peace periods in between. Revolutions are often like that too, right? If you have a tyrannical government in front of you and the goal is to overthrow them and form something new, it's easy to destroy something and it's easy to fight against something. The latter part of it, which is what we see depicted here, which is rebuilding something, especially when you're all the way on the other side of the world and the British basically go, okay, you win, we'll leave you alone, good luck. And now you're left with, oh shit, now we actually have to do this. Now we have to build something. Now we have to come together and take people with different ideals and different backgrounds and decide what should this new country be about and what a daunting task that must have been. Again, in in reference to modern warfare and modern wars, we saw that in Afghanistan, where if you watch some of these documentaries of what our military was doing, it's like, yeah, we're really good at going in, getting rid of the bad guys, and then you start to you know build schools, aqueducts, whatever. But the long-term plan of what are we going to do after the hostilities are over is almost never the best fleshed out part of the plan. So I think that from the events depicted to the way this show was created and executed it mirrors a lot the foundation of our country and the way the constitution was written and then amended and then all the years of strife we've had ever since and all these arguments that could be condensed back to the original Hamiltonian Federalists versus the Jeffersonian Democratic Republicans and what those ideals were. Another thing I we didn't get a chance to mention is, you know, a lot of these people were classically educated. So the idea of the Roman Republic uh, was foremost in their in their head, and this ancient Greek philosophy and the way classical thinkers thought was something they walked around thinking about all the time, um, and had a lot to do with the founding of our nation. Our Senate is built after the Roman Senate. 
anytime I see someone attempting something so monumental and taking on a topic that is going to be divisive and complex and difficult to write about, they're ahead of the pack as far as I'm concerned. I give them a lot of credit for, like Liam mentioned, the net good that this ended up doing in our society and I think uh, for the world as well. Again, perfect, it is not. But did it hit its mark? I think mostly it did. And I loved it. Again, I'm being newly introduced to musicals and theater. And so I, I get the advantage of seeing a lot of good stuff on the front end. But this was one of my favorite musicals that I've seen so far. And I was really engaged with it. And I can't wait to see it again. So the objective of this film, I think, is there's a lot going on here. I think Lin-Manuel Miranda, you know, is the ch child of immigrants and his previous play before this in the Heights was set in his in Washington Heights, which is his home neighborhood in New York. And I think his goals in this are a lot about bringing theater to be relatable for a wider variety of audiences, modernizing musical theater with the hip hop and the rap music that he chooses to use. And there is a certain sense of trying to tell a story of the past while also reflecting the realities of the present. He is not afraid to totally change things if it fits his narrative. And I think I prefer that. I prefer when my art takes decisive action. Like we are going to do things X, Y, Z and not kind of, uh, well, we'll just leave this vague. That does not make an impression on people. Whereas a decisive choice, people are going to love it or they're going to hate it. And I think Miranda does that well. This is an incredibly decisive musical from the different styles of rap that he uses to the theater direction to the costuming, you know, in that the only time the female presenting cast members wear dresses is if they're one of the Schuyler sisters or they are acting as participants in the play. But the chorus wears no dresses. It is just dance leggings for the women and then breeches for the men. And I think that's also very purposeful. Miranda had a lot of hope that he could bring something like this story, which is about an immigrant who had a huge effect on our society. I mean, he was the first secretary of the treasury and how our financial system is run is, for better or worse, is very much due to Alexander Hamilton. Was it on target? Yes and no. Some of his goals succeeded in making something more appealing to a wider variety of audiences because a lot of the people who were fans of this never actually went to see it until the Disney Plus thing. They all listened to the soundtrack and they knew the soundtrack by heart but had never seen the actual performance. So and I think that speaks to a certain level of success that is every musical's dream. Every musical wants to sell out the charts on their score and their soundtrack. But I think we did see it become less successful as society changed. Like we talked about as the Black Lives Matter movement kind of came into its own and we saw a lot more police violence being documented. I think people's perspectives 
on what they wanted out of this kind of art changed. And they wanted more than what the art was supposed to give, I think. And that's normal. You know, that's definitely a thing that happens with all art. So I think it is both, it hits it and it doesn't. And I think it could have improved some things like Eliza. We get that last few minutes of the play is all from Eliza's perspective, talking about how she worked so hard to bring Hamilton's legacy forward and all this, that, and the other thing. And I was like, why didn't we get more from her? We get a couple of really great songs. You know, we get Helpless, and then when she finds out he's been cheating on her, and both of those are just bangers. But I really would have liked to know more about her perception of the world. And I feel like that little end bit of the play, it's not necessarily ending on a down note for me. It's ending on this note of like, oh, but there was another story we could have heard that probably may have been more interesting than the one that we did and would have given us a different perspective. So I didn't appreciate that part of it. And I think I I really liked it. And not in the least, because this kind of hip-hop is, like, my absolute favorite. And I think Lin-Manuel Miranda is the second-best rapper I've ever heard. Aesop Rock, shout-out. Not Aesop Rocky. Aesop Rock, the original, is better, probably by a lot, than Lin-Manuel Miranda, which is saying something. Miranda talks about how, when he wrote some of these songs, he is having the rhymes be three and four deep. And the meanings on this are just buried within each other. And you have to rewind it and listen to it like, okay, I see. And you can pick out these different meanings from it the more you listen to it. And that is such a very limited skill that not a lot of folks have. And Miranda made it more interesting to me because he was able to do that and do it so, so well. I liked it. I love this the stage design, the costuming, all of the performances are just fantastic and I'll definitely watch it again. I'm still sad that I didn't get to go see it in person, but I don't know that I would prioritize the money to do it now that I can watch it on Disney Plus. There are other Broadway musicals I would rather spend the money on. So, what are we doing next, guys? All right, next in our list of sort of the winners out of the list of Revolution and Rebellion films we were discussing is The Battle of Algiers. So we're going back to the 60s. This is 1966. Gillo Pontecorvo is the director. I don't know anything about him or other films he's done, although I do know that he directed Marlon Brando in Burn a few years later. But uh, this film was commissioned by the Algerian government and was so kind of a propaganda piece against the French, but I don't know anything else about it. And it's about, of course, uh, the people of Algiers fighting for independence from the French government because Algeria was a French colony. And it's set in the 1950s. So thanks everyone, as usual, for tuning in. If you stuck around with us all the way to the end, we appreciate that you were open-minded enough to look at us doing a musical and doing something different. Again, we promise to always bring it back around and bring some combat and other more traditional war stuff back into it. And we'll continue to do that in this series. We will have had a Patreon, a new Patreon episode come out 
after this, which was a Wes Anderson film. So if you're interested, go check that out. You can go to www.dangerclosepod.com forward slash support. It's only $4 a month and you'll have a brand new war related film once a month. That one was Liam's pick. Uh, Close enough. And if you're interested in joining the discussion, hearing everyone talk about, you know, the weapons and more details in the history, you can go to Facebook and join our Danger Close podcast discussion group where there's a lot of really great discussion and a lot of our local experts chime in there. So thank you very much for joining us and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.